0: This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform.
1: This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi everybody, welcome to episode number 108, recorded on January 12th, 2023. As you can see from my background, it's always spring in Columbus, Ohio. I'm Tim Craig, your host from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I don't have a co-host today because Dr. Weigel is traveling and unfortunately couldn't make it, so I'm flying solo, but I've got a number of really special guests today to uh, round out our conversation. Uh, so I think it'll be a, a good time nonetheless. So our first guest that I'm going to introduce who will then introduce our other guests is a uh, an old uh, I don't want to say old and uh, a longtime <laughs> TWIPO a participant having uh, been uh, on on early episodes and and helping me in the early days of formulating this podcast way back when. Uh, and that's Dr. Jim Geller from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Welcome, Jim.
2: Thanks, Dr. Kripe. And I'll presume we can be informal is that's okay. Call you, uh, Tim? Y- yes, sir. All right. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, no, this is it's wonderful to be on, on TWIPO again and to be a part part of this process and to talk about liver tumors. I'm a pediatric oncologist in Cincinnati at Cincinnati Children's and involved with some some of our local work, but also working with our the children's oncology group and some of the national trials and you know one of the privileges as you know tim of being a pediatric oncologist is working with phenomenal parents and children and just being a part of a team that includes them and it's really a thrill to introduce uh, kelly and jess woolwine uh, parents of charlotte woolwine who who did have a hepatoblastoma and uh, i've just had a wonderful experience although it's sad for for some but wonderful experience getting to know this family it's a wonderful family and i just want to introduce kelly and jess
1: hello Welcome. Thanks for having us, Uh, fantastic to be included. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I think we wanted to have the three of you on together because uh, Dr. Geller is a world-renowned expert in in what we would call embryonal tumors, uh, kidney, uh, liver cancers, and has been leading the effort uh, nationally and and internationally in, in investigating these kinds of rare cancers. Jim, just as a little further background about you, your are uh, a medical director of the liver and, and, and renal tumor service there and co- co-director of the retinoblastoma service and the lead of the scientific committee for the liver tumor group at uh, the International Society of Pediatric Oncology, SIOP, and a co-chair uh, and a chair and a vice chair for lots of different clinical trials. So, you know, long, robust career uh, that you're in the middle of, um, but but going strong with lots of different uh, really cool clinical trials that you've led or are leading. So congratulations on all that progress. And um, that's, you know, we we wanted to make sure we could tap into your expertise here. So um, we'll get to that in a minute, but let's start with um, Kelly and, and Jessica. Could you just tell us a little bit about your story, your journey uh the beginnings? Maybe we don't want to prolong it too long, but just give us some of the highlights and how this diagnosis impacted her and you and your family.
0: Well, um, let's see, 2018 was when it all started for us. And Charlotte was three and a half years old. She was an extremely healthy child. She'd actually never, she had really never thrown up before. That was just bizarre how healthy she had been her whole life. And so she got what we thought was a stomach bug and couldn't quite just get over it we took her to the pediatrician and they thought that she might have appendicitis when we went in to do an ultrasound to look at her appendix that's when they saw her liver and um, we were here in Roanoke Virginia when that happened and no one at Roanoke Memorial Hospital where we were had ever treated hepatoblastoma so you know they they knew pretty quickly that something that they were probably there was tumor burden there. But um, then we, yeah, we were admitted. I mean, within, so we we got up that morning, went to the pediatrician's office. And by that night, we were told that Charlotte had stage four hepatoblastoma, which had spread to both of her lungs. And uh, we, on a personal side, I think, I know for me, I immediately started thinking, okay, well, What do we do? What's the next step? You know, my first question was, can we even fight this? Is that possible? And uh, the doctors here said, yes, we're going to go with there's a protocol and we're going to start that. And um, but the odds that they gave us were extremely low. And I said, well, as long as there's a chance that we can even start to battle this, that's what we're going to do. But Kelly and I immediately Knowing that it, learning very quickly, we had never heard of it either. They had never treated it. We started doing our research and really trying to figure out what this was and who knows anything about it. And and what all is she gonna have to go through on this journey and who will need to be involved in that? And so for us, we pretty quickly realized that we were gonna have to leave Roanoke. Um, And then it became apparent that we were gonna have to leave soon.
1: Can you back up just a bit to start off with stage four? That sounds pretty jarring. How long had she had symptoms, or how long do we think this might have been going she, on? She
0: well, she had had um, the nausea and the random vomiting for a, like a couple weeks, really. Um, but she had pain in her shoulder for about two months before she was diagnosed, and and I found that to be strange because I took her to the doctor twice for that. And they said, well, I think she's just pulled a muscle or something, but she had just this, you know, at times extreme nagging pain in her shoulder. And my father, who is a physician said, well, it, cause I was worried about it. I think just mother's intuition, I knew something wasn't right. I knew it wasn't just a pull muscle, something was going on. And my dad told me, he said, well, I mean, I find this very unlikely, but if there was something in her abdomen that was pushing on her diaphragm, she could be having referred pain. And I said, well, what would that be? He's like, I mean, you know, it could be a number of things. I mean, of course my dad, I think probably already as a physician was thinking in his head like the worst things it could be, which he didn't reveal to me, but that's when we were like, well, maybe it is like appendicitis and there's just some swelling and that's what this was from. So technically her shoulder pain was the first symptom, but no one caught that. No one at her pediatrician's office had ever even, you know, they didn't know anything about hepatocystoma. And so then it was the vomiting really that got us to the hot or to the pediatrician's office. But again, she wasn't really sick, even though on the inside she was really, really sick. And so that's what it is jarring about this disease is that it can become so advanced with very little symptoms.
1: Two things I learned from that story is your father's a smart man. <laughs> he, <he's laughs> and the pretty, other thing is. Cancer can be, uh, you know, hidden and mimic other things. Yeah. Sorry, Kelly.
3: Yeah. Well, right. I, I was just going to say, you know, the the thing that's unique about pediatric cancer and a rare pediatric cancer to boot, you know, that's not on your radar as parent. You know, I, I'm an old guy. If if I I went in and 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 you hit me with something, I don't know that I would be all that surprised. As a parent of a three and a half year old. That's a that's a train coming down the tracks that you never saw coming. And so the uh the overwhelming of that, and then when you pile a rare disease on top of it, heck, that most of the people who are treating you have never seen. The unique part about it is your instinct is just to let them put their arms around you. And what you want to do as parents is is just trust in the people that are standing in front of you, that have diagnosed and said, here's our battle plan. You know, as Jess said, they painted a very grim picture for us because I think looking back on it, all they had access to was statistics. Look it up. What are the numbers? Wow, Charlotte's got this and this and this and this. That ain't good. And that was their body language to us. So it it, it was very tough. You you wanna take on faith that your, your care providers You know, are are up here on a pedestal. They've diagnosed it. They know how to treat it. You just buckle up, say your prayers, and you trust the men and women who are right there in front of you. But what we learned very quickly, and what I would say to anybody listening, is for God's sakes, we plead with you: if you don't do anything else, unfortunately, you have to take on the burden of asking questions and pressing for answers. You have to go out there, and should you have to do that, would you like to go into any competent care system anywhere in the United States and think in this day and age you got the best available? You'd love to think that, but you just can't take that for granted when it comes to pediatric cancer and particularly a rare disease. We don't take anything for granted. You know, we we don't trust any answer we get in our life anywhere. We're very blessed that way. Um, <laughs> We asked <laughs> I knew
0: Jim was going to laugh. <laughs> I, you know, I
3: know we've made his life very difficult because we don't let him get away with anything with that, you know, without a lot of litmus testing. Um, but but we a- asked a lot of questions and demanded answers just just to learn and to make, you know, like Jess said, she was the captain of this. You know, is this all we can do? Is this the best there is? is are you sure about that? You know, she really pressed on that. And I I, I tend to be her worker bee, you know, and it made sense to me. This is not enough. And so doing homework, getting out there online, calling upon all my professional relationships, anyone that I thought could be on the peripheral of the world of cancer. And, you know, as you guys pointed out, Uh, When you start, you put in the word apetoblastoma anywhere to anyone that's ever heard of it or on Google, uh, Jim Geller, Dr. James Geller, you're going to land there when you go down that rabbit hole. So so we were very blessed to have the inclination first to ask a lot of questions and not take answers at face value. And then second, um, that this disease had someone at the forefront of treating it like Dr. Geller. Mm. Uh, but again, in the interest of broadcasts, anybody listening, the, the, the what's the takeaway? Ask questions, push and go look, because anybody can administer chemo. But what we learned, what, what our oncologist told us, and this is an exact quote, and this is not against any of the men and women that are here doing their best, They said you are going to get the same treatment protocol anywhere you go, and you're going to get the same chemo anywhere you go. So you might as well be here where your support system is. Well, what we learned at Cincinnati Children's is the chemo and the the protocol that's published is a small tip uh, of a pyramid that's much bigger.
0: Much bigger. Uh, just
3: the tip of the iceberg. The things that, that Dr. Geller and his team and the men and women at Cincinnati Children's did, 80% of all the things they did on a daily basis that, that saved Charlotte's life and keep us in the game were, were not on the radar. Uh, where we were diagnosed.
0: And the only way that you could know how to navigate these little things and nuances that came up, even just very small details of her daily care, someone who is treated at least one or, you know, where we got to go, Cincinnati Children's, who've treated several children with this exact rare disease, they know from experience how to answer these questions, how to navigate these nuances, how to you know, really give the best care because they've been through it and they've been through it. So it makes total sense that, of course, a facility where they've seen this over and over would be more fine-tuned to give the best treatment. You know, treatment is not just words on a paper. It's so much more than that. And we... We know that firsthand because of our journey.
1: I wanted to unpack a little bit of what you said a little more in terms of asking questions and seeking advice and Googling and all that, because what we have found is our patients often will get a lot of bad advice or everybody and their mother and Uncle Joey or everybody wants to send you their thoughts. You know, you got to take this herb or you got to do that. How do you weed through the bad advice that you or did you get what you in retrospect think? was maybe misguided advice from anybody, uh, family members or others, friends, and how do you weed through that to what's sort of the the, the real stuff?
3: Well, I, you're right. I mean, we got everything in our inboxes from you know doctors and hospitals to you know herbal supplements. Don't trust the doctors. you you get everything. I think the the key point of data for us that Jess talked about, is whatever disease you've, you've been diagnosed with, somebody out there, however rare it is, who's treated more of it than anybody else? And, and when we went digging at a we talked to a lot of doctors who were learning from Dr. Geller. And, and when you look at who's treated, how many of this, where did they go? You know, it led us, led us to him and his team. So my opinion would be, if, if you're looking for anything credible, real and data-driven, Who's treated it the most? Who's seen it the most? Find right. that. that, that's the cheese and the maze. go find it.
0: There are new resources now also that are available that weren't available when Charlotte was diagnosed. Um, so this is a great point. And I was gonna bring this back up and I'm glad that you did Tim, because for a parent to figure out if they have the means to even leave where they are and try to find the best treatment, how do they do that? It's a great question and you know, I will say I will say I immediately, when she was diagnosed, also looked on social media and to see if there were any groups of families who were diagnosed and that's a tricky you know that's a tricky thing to use as a resource because it's social media and you are going to have to filter through people's opinions it's not very scientific you know but i will say that the facebook group for hepatoblastoma families on you know that i'm a part of is sometimes very helpful and everyone on there is pretty aware especially the ones that have been on this journey for a long time, they know kind of the centers of excellence in the United States for hepatoblastoma And they know that who the people are that are really doing things. But now we have hepatoblastoma.org, which is a wonderful resource. And hepatoblastoma.org is set up very nicely to help families who were first diagnosed and tell them here are the centers of excellence, here are the places that are really doing something with patoblastoma. So that's a wonderful resource, you know, depending on what the cancer is. There are other resources like that out there for other rare pediatric cancers. Hepatoblastoma.org did not exist when we were diagnosed. Um, however it does exist now and it's a wonderful resource so there are those resources out there and i think you know if you can find a .org for what your child has it's probably going to point you in the right direction there's a couple other i can't remember the name of it right now there's another website that is supposed to kind of cover all pediatric cancers and you type in your type and it tells you the best hospitals i've you know I've actually gone in and, and put everything in, knowing what I know now. I can't say that the hospitals that came up were even. I, I don't even know that Cincinnati Children's even came up, honestly, for a pedoblastoma. So I'm not really sure what their algorithm is. But yeah, I mean, I think that families, you, it is tough. It is tough to really figure out and get that information. But finding a .org, and you know, worst case, you know, social media. You go on these groups, and you know, these families who've been at it for a long time, they. It's kind of a small community. I mean, you can ask a lot of questions and find a lot
1: out. Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, we always say .org, .gov, .edu are reliable sources. Right. Everything else, uh, you know, give it a, a question yeah, mark. Be but careful. It's really yeah. good, good advice. And, and uh, good to hear there's there's resource because, you know, we don't want to send everyone to Jim or he'll get overwhelmed. Right. There are. Right. there are, uh, Everyone's uh, a <laughs> that we've encountered. <laughs> but, but yeah. So. Um, let's let's move on. We're going to run out of time pretty quickly here uh, because it's good to hear from you and your perspective. Um, let's move forward in your journey a little bit. Uh, you decide to go and 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 you met with Dr. Geller and uh, Jim. I guess maybe what were some of your impressions um, about Charlotte or, or uh, her situation and uh, the family situation?
2: Yeah, uh, Tim, thanks. And it was, it was nice to hear you, Kelly and Jess, tell, tell your story. I think some of the most important things that come out of this episode, Tim, are the parent perspective and pediatric oncology. So take whatever time you need for that. And I'm happy to talk about the liver tumor stuff whenever you need me to or want me to. When I met Charlotte, she'd been through a lot. Her parents had been through a lot. The treatment had, had, you know, was getting going and she did have advanced disease and concerns for, for rupture, concerns for lung metastases, her age being greater than three various what we call prognostic factors that that we do look at when we risk stratify uh, a child situation and thinking about how intensive therapy needs to be given. With regards to delivery of therapy, just a couple of comments. You're right, Tim, there are a lot of places that are equipped to do this. It's it's not just one. We do write trials collaboratively. Representations from probably more than a dozen centers were involved in drafting our national trial for pedoblastoma that used as a, as a benchmark to treat treat Charlotte. And it, it is true that not all centers have all the components of care that a child needs, such as liver transplant when necessary. And we try nationally to work together to bridge institutions that have the resources and have the, the know-how and, and those that know how to do part of it but and have access to the rest of it and work collaboratively. And our hope is that every child, no matter where they're diagnosed, gets excellent care and gets access and and ideally gets care closer to home as much as possible. And again, there are a number of centers equipped to do to take care of the more complex situation. I, I thank you both for the kind kind comments. The the optimism that that I felt in in taking care of Charlotte early on was largely related to the knowledge that therapy had shifted. There's some early data coming out of Europe in treating metastatic disease that was very encouraging. We had our own experiences of how to clear lung metastases with with novel imaging agents and and radio and uh, pharma uh, probes, fluorescent probes, and just the toolkit of being able to use more aggressive chemo, more aggressive surgery, liver transplant has expanded beyond what historical trials and data depended upon. And you know, when you see that, and as Tim, as you know, in our field of pediatric oncology, when you see the field shifting and you see the tools increasing and you see the outcomes starting to be impacted, it gives you a little bit of of, it gives you a little more hope and a little bit more uh more fight in in the engine and um and that's what we brought forward when we met Charlotte
1: oh that's great I'm I'm sure they're feeling fortunate to uh capitalize on all the prior research that's that was going on and progress and we always know there needs to be much more and we'll get get into that a bit I'm sure our audience is going to want to know though how Charlotte's doing today so Kelly and Jessica tell us a little bit more about uh, you know what's what's happening today yeah. and how is she doing
0: well, this has been a long journey. Um we we got through the first part and got her into remission after that first year. And then we ended up doing some doing relapse treatment in 2020 into 2021. And then we were clear after relapse treatment and have been for It would be coming up on two years, but um, we actually this week have found something else we might have to go in and take care of in her lung. So we might be looking at one more surgery for her, unfortunately. But you know, we're we're hopeful. We're very hopeful that this is you know the way I look at it is I. I'm able to kind of stand back and look at her, her journey from start to now. And it it seems like we're, we're getting to a place where, you know, this may finally be it. And that's our hope, but yeah, we are, we are going on our fifth year of battling this and there's still, it's still not, uh, smooth sailing necessarily although she's been completely healthy and wonderful for the past 2 years there just may be a little a little bit of work left to do
1: so. so what kind of impact on her do you think there has been and how you know how did she handle and go through all this and um what has it changed in her life
0: well charlotte is completely magical is the only word that i can describe her and that's not enough she's she's incredible she's the sweetest thing ever and but she's so incredibly brave and resilient and positive she's a she's so forward-looking and positive and she doesn't dwell on things and she kind of just in this beautiful way moves through it and she knows it's part of her story she wears her scars like a badge of honor and this is a little different ground we're in new ground right now because she is seven and a half now and We haven't had to have, you know, in fact, to be honest with you, we haven't had the discussion with her yet about this new surgery that's about to happen. And so it's going to be a little different because she's a lot more aware now and she's going to have different questions. And um, to be honest, it's just it is that is a really new difficult part of navigating. This is to keep it as hopeful and positive for her so she's not scared and so that she continues to have that. Brave, beautiful attitude towards all of this because I think that's a big part of her healing and her getting through it. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of where we're at right now. We we're about to have that conversation with her. So,
1: Oh, we're gratified to hear she had a, the last couple of years have been good. Sorry to hear there's a bump in the road, and our thoughts and prayers are going to be with her and you all for for this and any challenges. One thing about cancer, I think it keeps you on edge. For a long period of time, yeah. uh, and lots of lots of unknowns and fits and starts and things. Jim, what what is the current treatment for a What do you have to put your patients through, and how well does it work? And what are the gaps left to to figure out?
2: That's a great question, Tim. I, I first want to add a comment uh, related to your question, related to what uh, what Jess just said, is that um, the current treatment it, it includes pressing the gas pedal when you need to press it and having some perspective that a lot of these kids, even after they relapse, can be cured. The the cure rate after relapse is is not inconsequential and multiple relapses are not uncommon in the lung. Uh, Late recurrences that are uh, amenable to lung surgery. I get calls from oncologists around the world at times wondering what to do the second time and keep at it is my message. Keep at it, a lot of these kids are cured and uh, clearly I'm on the record here and I remain very hopeful for Charlotte. No one ever gives a guarantee in oncology. I, my hat's off to the strength of Kelly and Jess to join us today, uh, but I just want to express, uh, express true hope and, I, and optimism and uh, uh, keeping at it is a message I would share with our oncologists, especially when they are slow indolent processes because these kids can do well. That, that's the back end. On the front end, uh, we do stratify therapy to answer your question directly, Tim. Um, there are patients who present with low risk who can be resected and, and and do fine. It's a very rare group of what's called pure fetal hepatoblastoma, that's stage one, where you resect it and you give no chemotherapy. The larger majority of patients who have resectable disease up front, about, about 20% of the kids have what's called group A disease. And they generally re- require a couple cycles of chemotherapy uh, with very, very high survivals. And um, it's cisplatin-based. With a couple cycles, we usually don't see too many long-term effects, but hearing loss is, is one of the key ones. For those that have unresectable disease at front, but where there are no metastases, um, we do stratify based on other prognostic variables, such as where is the tumor in relation to the veins inside the liver and how challenging would it be to re- be resected, to rupture? Uh, is it climbing into the vein itself? And this is something called a pretext score. And we we are studying the best approach to that. There are lower risk groups where we're questioning whether two or, sorry, four or six cycles of cisplatin monotherapy uh, is enough. And then there are more advanced situations where we're testing the question of six cycles of cisplatin versus uh, six cycles of cisplatin with other drugs like doxorubicin, 5 fluorouracil and vincristin. And in the European uh, side, they're, they're, they have an older approach that incorporates carboplatin as well for that group. And uh, our current international study called the FIT trial, incorporates a third arm in Europe. The fourth group are those that have metastatic disease like Charlotte. And um, it involves uh, aggressive chemotherapy for about 11 weeks. And we hope that the lungs clear by then. For those that clear, they get another nine weeks of chemotherapy. For those that don't clear, we're testing the question of adding a different agent or in a T-can or adding an agent called the topicide and seeing if 18 weeks of either of a cocktail afterwards makes a difference for those whose lungs don't clear right away. Of course, the primary tumor has to be dealt with and in the more advanced situations, uh, sometimes liver transplant is necessary. Overall, about one in five children diagnosed with hepatoblastoma seem to require a liver transplant. Um, We are learning how to tailor all of these therapies. I threw a lot of drugs at you pretty fast and sort of glanced over. I know that we don't have an enormous amount of time. We're learning how to tailor therapy to the child better and better. Uh, Our efforts are to try and reduce therapy where we can, intensify therapy where we need to, try and reduce long-term effects and improve cure. And to do that, Tim, we're doing that through an international study I mentioned called AHEP 1531 in the Children's Oncology Group, or FIT, which is the international approach, uh, international group. It, It includes Children's Oncology Group in North America, New Zealand, Australia, It includes the SIAPEL, which is the International Society of Pediatric Oncology in Europe and Liver, which includes all the European countries as well as some others. It includes the Japanese Children's Cancer Group, which includes Japan and some other areas in in Southeast Asia. It's a true world study. It involved five to seven years of all of us from the world getting together to study this rare cancer. And eventually in 2018, it, it launched. And since then, despite it being a rare cancer, we're about to enroll our 1,000th child with hepatoblastoma through an international collaboration where we can really ask and answer some of these questions about how much does each kid need. So it is a rare cancer and the only way to study it well is to collaborate. And um, I'm, I'm privileged to be, to be able to be involved with that.
1: Wow, 1,000, that's gonna yield a lot of information. To be able
2: to our target's 1,200, but uh, we're getting there.
1: That's fantastic. I mean, it's it's uh, so I don't think people on the call or listening probably uh, appreciate the yeoman's effort it takes to be able to do international studies, uh, the especially with tissue samples being involved. So congratulations on all that progress. What are what are your big unanswered questions, do you think, you know, for a path? Yeah, Tim, I,
2: I think it comes down to uh, where can we get away with less and where do we need more? You know, reduction of toxicities is important. You know, I, in, in my clinic, about half the children that get treated for hepatoblastoma usually end up with hearing aids for hearing loss as a long-term side effect. And um, understanding, can we give less cisplatin to some of these kids? Obviously, biology leading to better drugs is always nice. But with the current tool set, can we give less and uh, the other question is, can we prevent hearing loss with hearing protection agents such as thodium sulfate, which has recently been FDA approved for localized hepatoblastoma to try and reduce uh, the rates of hearing loss? For those with more aggressive disease, some of the key questions are, when does a child really need liver transplant versus can a surgeon do some fancy work with their scalpel and do what's called a an aggressive resection? And um, and that's debated with children who have multifocal disease in the liver. Some surgeons can carve them out, and some surgeons. Uh, usually, it's not a skill; it's an intellectual decision making. And I, I, you know, there are, the surgeons are working together nationally and internationally, actually, to try and ask an answer when a, an aggressive local surgery versus a transplant is the right thing. How to use. A fluorescent probe into designing green and targeting uh, lung metastases and helping resect these small nodules that if you give some of this into the vein the day before and you take a scope and, and glow some light on the lung you can actually see some green glow in certain areas and you can pick up these micro metastases and is that going to make a difference in relapse rates just picking up things that are less than a millimeter in size and resected impact outcome how does that help at the relapse setting That's an important question of how to use this new tool. And again, how much chemotherapy is needed for those who have metastatic disease? We are shifting the curve and outcomes there, thankfully. What remains the Wild West um, is how to deal with relapse. There have been no real formal studies, no long prospective studies. To achieve that, we've developed a relapsed um, and refractory hepatoblastoma registry that has launched. You can find information about that on hepatoblastoma.org or if you just look up, Um, um, rrhbl.org. We're trying to centralize knowledge and collaboration with centers from around the country and investigators around the country. Um, It's uh, in collaboration under a liver tumor research collaborative between Cincinnati and Boston, but we're we're involving anyone interested to participate, uh, not just at the parent level, but at, at the oncologist, surgeon, and biologist level. It truly is collaborative, discussed nationally, and how we can integrate people and and advance our understanding of how to deal with relapse and second events. When you take rare and make it more rare, our knowledge base gets a little bit less and evidence becomes less and we need to improve our evidence.
1: You think there's any role for immunotherapies, which are, you know, a hot topic and cancer? these? Days.
2: Yeah, you, you know, it's a great question, Tim. There, There, are, there is preclinical work looking at pd one pdl one and various other genomic profiles and different findings within the cancer. And I think if you look hard enough, you can identify a predictive marker that would suggest immunotherapy will work in every cancer. Whether it will or won't is, is another question. Like like other embryonal cancers, hepatoblastoma are fairly genomically inert, meaning they don't have lots of mutations. And we know that mutational burden or lots of mutations predicts for benefit from such immunotherapy. I've treated a few patients off- not a clinical trial and haven't seen robust responses. There's anecdotes out there. Um, So I say haven't seen robust responses. There's anecdotes out there. There's interest to try and study them more formally, uh, the PD-1 inhibitors in particular. It is more complicated for those post-liver transplant that are on immune suppressive therapy, debated in the literature whether such patients should get uh, immune therapy and some do and some do okay and some do and have liver problems. So it's yet to be formally tested. Uh, There's Preclinical data that would point both ways, anecdotal data that may be on the on the slight side, but um, that's the best I can do at this point.
1: Yeah, Uh, I think you know there's still much to learn and much to study, and it takes longer with a rare rare cancer like that. So, Jessica and Kelly, we started this podcast where you actually gave a quite a clear message to other parents in terms of sort of your thoughts and advice. Why don't we end the podcast on any message you might have for providers? or advocates or government officials or funders, or what? Are, what's your message for the professionals and, and the advocates of, about a blastoma or pediatric cancer in general? What would you like to say to folks?
3: I don't think we have enough time to say everything <laughs> I wanna say. I, I will say first that other than, you know, after Charlotte's diagnosis, the most heartbreaking thing that we encountered. So, so Jess and I, we're bound and determined from the start, you know, to not let this, and this is full credit to her to set the tone with me that very first night to not let this simply be a curse and bad luck, uh, like the demon had found us and, and we would never understand why. Um, she set the tone that we should find the reason in terms of what are we supposed to do now and how we turn this into something other than just a tragedy. And so we set out to to er, every bit of bandwidth we could spare here and there when we're not in treatment is, okay, how do we make the world better for the next kid and the next family? And so we've learned a lot about cancer culture. And other than Charlotte's diagnosis, speaking for me, the most heartbreaking thing that I have encountered is is that the reality is so many of these things in treatment uh, that Dr. Geller was talking about and, and even cure are just a matter of allocation of existing resource. And the, the harshest, harshest reality I've learned is that the reason there are not better treatment, not better access to data, and no closer to cure for some of these pediatric cancers is because there's no profit in it. it. It's not a revenue generator. There, there, are, there are things on the shelves at pharmaceuticals sitting there uh, because it's not worth, there's no ROI There's no profit in in finishing this out and finding out if it's a benefit to children. There's not enough government funding because the numbers don't work. Uh, So, so, you know, there's only one thing that can fix that. Anybody listening, if you give a penny or a nickel to anything, if you're making your year-end contribution, money has got to find its way to pediatric cancer. Uh, and it's not going to be easy and it's not going to happen organically. So, you know, help us overpower the lack of profit and bring resources to this. That's a number one, because I can tell you, man, kids are curable. I mean, yeah. they, they fight and they don't even know they're fighting. Their, their bodies can do amazing things. Their spirit, I mean, little Charlotte's got the heart of a dragon. She, you know, there was just all the things that Jim and his team did to her. Uh, she she never batted an eye, and that's the the wonderful thing about children. And and then the other thing I would say is for the parents in general. You hear the word aggressive, and sometimes in describing these cancers and diseases, and you'll hear Dr. Geller and his team talk about being aggressive in treatment. Well, the parents need to adopt that word too. You've got to stay energetic and hang tough. It is a marathon, not a sprint one of the very first teams and doctors that I talked to as we were working down the rabbit hole to get to Dr. Geller, we were probably only four or five days into this journey. He said something that that I'll never forget. He, you know, he was saying, he was kind of shedding some light on what our journey was probably going to be like clinically and surgically and treatment, things like that. And and my jaw was just hitting the floor because no one had said that to me yet. He said, You will not beat pediatric cancer. Number one, you've got to wrap your head around. There's going to be a heavy price. Number two, you're going to be at this for a good long while. And number three, it's going to take everything and more. Get your energy right. Charge up your batteries. Ask questions. Be energetic. Be in the game. Learn the labs. Understand the language. Talk to more than one doctor. And you know what's wonderful is the doctors, every doctor we encountered right up to Dr. Geller were approachable and informative and patient with us and answered all our questions. They were so accommodating. Uh, it, it's right there. But unfortunately, in pediatric cancer, it's just not going to land in your lap. Uh, there, there's no resource. You can just pull off the shelf. A directory you look at and it tells you where to go. So to the parents, be aggressive. Get, get in the game.
1: It's fantastic uh inspirational message and and a call to action uh and, and a good good way for us to to close out here I think so thank you uh Kelly and Jessica for for being here and for all your great comments and we appreciate uh your sharing your story with us today
3: uh, thanks so much for having us, Tim. And, and as, as Dr. Geller said earlier, we're on record. And, and I, would, I would just not be able to live with myself if I didn't say the, you know, the miracle we're living today are because of Dr. Geller and his team. Yeah. H- had we not gone there, we probably wouldn't be here. And we are so thankful for the work that he and his team are doing. They are world class. They are unique. And they are passionate about what they do.
0: Yeah, they are.
1: Well, thank you, Jim, for for being all that and providing great care as well as uh, research, and for sharing your knowledge and and perspectives with us today. So, it, I think that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to the team for solving kids' cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight. And thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.
0: We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at KidsOncDoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige 7
2: at umn.edu and find all Twiplo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.